you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 119, a much beloved psalm in this congregation, I know. The reading of God's word comes from Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. And this transfer of relationship out of Adam into Jesus Christ has also transformed our relationship to the law, for it no longer condemns us. It aids us. It guides us. It is the rule of life, and in it we see on display God's holiness and righteousness and goodness and the longing of the new heart for the life that we would have lived out in us. Indeed, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, which more and more we are yearning for. And so it is with that that we take up a song of delight in the good and holy law of God, not as the law that condemns, but as the one which comes to us as those freed from the curse of the law. Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. It is the yearning of the new heart, the heart which has been given to us by God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly walked in the law of the Lord in our stead, and now gives us a new appetite, an appetite for righteousness, which he alone can satisfy. As he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon our sermon text this evening. Father, how excellent are your ways. How good and lovely are your dealings with your creatures. How precious is your word. How excellent that it is ours. Given to us from you, our Father, in and through the Son, the eternal word and brought home to most intimate lodgings in our hearts by the wonderful power of the Holy Spirit who has been poured out upon the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the majesty on high. And it is from there where he continues to minister to us his sheep who long to hear his voice, who long to see him through the eyes of faith, who long to know him more and more, for in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge 
In Him is our sanctification, our justification, our wisdom, and our life. As we lend our hearts and our mind to Your Word, O Triune God, sanctify us by Your truth, for Your Word is truth. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn in the New Testament to Romans chapter 5. If you want, you can flip in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal to the shorter catechism. Question 16, which is on page 969. I'll read the passage from Romans 5, and then we'll turn our attention to the question. This is the very word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Westminster Shorter Catechism question 16 asks, Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Yes, and amen. In the Fellowship of the Ring, the first Lord of the Rings movies, the nine travelers who comprise the fellowship stand at the gates of the mines of Moria. Do you remember this scene? I'm sure you've seen the movie. Almost everyone has seen the movie at this point. Whether you liked it or not, that's on you. But surely you've seen the movie. (laughs) The fellowship is standing at the gates of the mines of Moria, and over the door is written, Speak, friend, and enter. And they sit there riddling this out for some time. 
And while they're waiting, Mary and Pippin are throwing rocks into this calm-looking lake. They finally figure out the mystery of the words, and they enter the mines. And you remember what they find there. They don't find a warm welcome. They find death. They find the mines are a tomb. And they reasonably try to retreat. They see the way before them being death, and they seek to leave. And what happens? The rocks which Mary and Pippin had thrown into the water awoke a monster of some kind who brought down the entrance, closing their escape, leaving them in a world of death with nowhere to go but forward through a world of curse. We continue this morning to consider the fall, the tragedy of the garden, Adam's rebellion, Adam's sin and fall. Adam had been promised life in the covenant of works, but in disobeying the covenant of works, the way of works unto life, was closed to him, but the covenant itself remained active, demanding that which he could no longer give, making him liable to a world of curse. Retreat was sealed off, just as the way of works unto life was sealed off. And thus, Adam... And we and him were sealed by a double seal, as it were. We're still continually tempted to approach God on a legal basis, aren't we? The temptation unto legalism has been a perennial issue from the time of Paul unto now. Our hearts are tempted to look at God as if are standing or falling, we're still bound to a covenant of works. We hear in our question this morning, and we heard in our passage from Romans, that such a way of acceptance, such a way of life is utterly closed for us. The only object down that path is curse and death. And such a foolish conception of thinking that somehow it is our works which can establish us before God. A foolish conception that somehow it is our performance can welcome us into his presence fails to grapple with so many truths of scripture. The spirituality of the law, its relentless demand for personal perfect and perpetual obedience. But as we see here, it also fails to grapple with the fact that we had fallen and sinned in Adam. The way was closed to us before any of us came onto the world stage. To deal with God on the basis of works is to deny the plain testimony of Scripture That in Adam we sinned, in Adam we fell, and on the basis of works, only curse 
and death can result. And so the question before us continues to ask the significance of this covenant of works for us now as those who by nature are in Adam but by grace are in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning the question reminds us that Adam was a public person, a covenant head, a federal representative, and our estate, our standing before God in God's infinite wisdom was bound up with Adam's performance. Adam standing was our standing. Adam falling was our falling. For by God's covenantal designs, we were in him. We are his descendants by ordinary generation. And thus, we are reminded that a wholly different way of life must be opened to us. Which the question hints at, doesn't it? For only those who proceed from him by ordinary generation are subject to such a reality. And there was one who came about by extraordinary generation, who was our Savior. And so we ask three questions this evening of our one question. First, what is a covenant head? God appointed Adam to act as the representative of the whole human race. Adam was the covenant head of the whole human race, descending from him by ordinary generation. That's how the question opens. The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity. God's arrangement was such that Adam stood in this covenant of works, not just as a private person, but as a public person, which is to say, as one who held all of us in him by virtue of representation. Now we can make a note as an aside here that in the garden, who sinned first? It was Eve. Eve's sin was first. But whose sin plunged the world into a state of sin and misery? It was Adam's. Adam's was the greater sin, in a sense, for he held the position of higher responsibility. He held the status of covenant representative, covenant head. It was his eating which plunged the world into darkness. Adam is plainly more than a private person. Adam is plainly acting in a covenant capacity plainly acting as a federal representative there in the garden. And we see this from a number of observations. Notice how all the curses pronounced upon Adam fell upon his offspring. And this not due to their personal violation of the covenant, but rather their solidarity in Adam. This has been observed by John Murray. When we come to the New Testament, we find passages such as the one we read in Romans 5, 
And a similar line of thinking in 1 Corinthians 15, where we hear what is essentially a two Adams theology, that there are only two covenant heads that have ever walked this earth in the most profound sense. And it is Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, in God's sovereign wisdom and power and goodness, he has so arranged his dealings with man along the principle of representation. The principle of representation seen on display in his dealing with Adam as a representative and with the Lord Jesus Christ as the representative of the elect. This too observed by John Murray. We can also note that when God enters into a covenant, mark how frequently the refrain, not only for you, but for your offspring. All of the major covenants into which God entered was not made just with the principal person, but also with the principal's offspring. You see this on display in Noah. You see this on display in Abraham. You see this on display in Israel. You see this on display in David. And so it is with Adam. And though it is not divinely inspired, the book of Second Esdras 7, 448, comments rightly when it says, O thou Adam, what hast thou done? For though it was thou that sinned, thou art not fallen alone, but we all that come of thee. It is true, for this is the plain testimony of Scripture. In God's sovereign and wise dealings, Adam stood for us, and we fell in him. We know this principle. We see it illustrated everywhere around us, don't we? I had to look it up because I didn't know, but... I had heard of such a thing as power of attorney, <laughs> and I knew that a principle of representation stood somewhere near the heart of this legal concept. One stands as representative by law for another, and indeed an entire estate where his actings are constituted the actings of the one whom he represents. Current affairs perhaps illustrates this for us. If one sovereign of a nation declares war on another nation in a manner of speaking, the whole nation goes to war against a whole nation, the sovereign of that nation being the representative of that nation. We feel the tension of that, but it is true we wouldn't feel the tension if there weren't a strand of truth in that. Now, we are humbled by God's wisdom and sovereignty on display in this arrangement. Perhaps we would not have set it up this way. The entire human race standing or falling in one man. But let's be honest, we know so little. We understand so little. And God does all things well. And it pleased our sovereign God to arrange things in this way. And it's not hard to see how it abounded to his glory. For the glory of the second man is bound up with his triumph and his federal status as our head and our redemption. And we can also go on to observe, asking the question, was our first covenant head well supplied for this ordeal? 
The objection is constantly raised, isn't it? That's not fair. How can my standing or falling be bound up with another? That doesn't seem just. That doesn't seem fair. But what is often overlooked is the excellency of our first champion. The extraordinary nature of the one who was appointed to undergo the ordeal on our behalf. Ecclesiastes, God made man upright and he has sought out many devices. The objection of fairness seems to take its power from the assumption that we didn't have a true and excellent representative that somehow he was deficient in some way, standing through an ordeal that he had no hope of succeeding, but such is far from the case. He was a most noble Olympian, another stage on which representation is played, isn't it? In some sense, these athletes who are all excellent specimen, the finest representatives of their nature, gathering on an international stage to compete in the games of glory for their nations. For is not their victory in some sense redounding unto the glory of those that they represent? And they are excellent champions. They are remarkable specimens as they undergo their ordeal. How much more the one who was created in true righteousness and holiness with a mind that was illuminated with the resplendent amphitheater of God's glory who communed with God face to face. How excellent a champion we had in the first Adam. I don't know what you make of Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15, but certainly it is true of the first man in some sense. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, Topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed garden cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. We've referenced one of my favorite poems, Casey at the Bat, and the hopes of the team which rested on no slight shoulders. It was mighty Casey who was up. It was a champion the likes of which the team could not replicate. <laughs> a parallel that no one could adduce. He was an excellent champion. He was a remarkable specimen. And this is the one whom God appointed to stand through the ordeal for us. In God's wisdom and goodness, he put a full-grown and well-equipped man through a loyalty ordeal. And it was eminently fair and eminently reasonable and indeed kind to Adam's offspring for this was a remarkable champion, making his fall all the more tragic. This was no slight hero. This was the work of God 
on display in perfection, making his rebellion heinous beyond degree. And so we can ask what happened to us as the result of his failure. Paul tells us plainly, one trespass led to the condemnation of all men. Or as our question states, all mankind sinned in him and fell with him. John Bunyan writes, the act was personally Adam's and imputatively mine. Personally his because he did it. Imputatively mine because I was then in him. Indeed, the effects of his personal eating is found in my person to wit defilement and depravity. And we can hear the image in the question. It's not just Adam as public person. It's not just Adam as covenant representative. It's also Adam as root of mankind and the organic unity that we share with him as our first father descendants of this traitorous rebel. Remarkable on the one hand for the image of God remains, but fallen marred in all of those excellent capacities which separate us from the brutish world. Children, have you heard strangers come up to you or perhaps family members come up to you and say, oh, you, you look like your mom. You look like your dad. You're looking more like your mom and your dad more and more each day. Those likenesses only continue as you get older and you find the depth to which they run to be rather unsettling. And so it is. The likeness unto our first father, Adam. The depth is unsettling. For we are his proper offspring, marred in sin, marred by his fall. And because we are his children by natural progenation and he is our representative as our covenant head, we have become double debtors. In Adam, not only do we owe the perfect, personal, perpetual obedience, which was the proper re responsibility of man in the covenant of works, but now we owe a debt of punishment. The debt of sin being punished in us as transgressors. We've referred to this illustration before. If a man has stolen millions of dollars from his company, it is not enough for him to simply stop stealing and promise to be faithful from this time forward. There is the matter of the millions stolen that is still outstanding. Thus, our guilt in Adam makes us liable to a debt that we cannot pay that none can pay in themselves. And thus the first use of this doctrine that can be made is we are to see Adam's failure and we are to despair of our works as the basis for life before God. No one shall be justified by works of the law. No one shall be justified by works of the law. The one who violates the law in one point is accountable for all of it. That way is closed. 
I'm going to have to tell you again because you're going to forget. It cannot be by works, for if it was by works of the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ died in vain. Let us despair of works of the law as the basis of our acceptance before God. The way is closed, clothed clothed in fire, closed to us by that firing sword. Even our faith-fueled good works, which we delight to see adorning our gospel confession, cannot be the foundation of our acceptance. For they are so fraught with imperfection. They are so marred with doubt. They are so marred by insincerity that they cannot sustain the judgment. Only the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ can. Only the righteousness of the law which he himself yielded from front to back. Being born under the law. Yielding himself in perfect obedience. Even as the world arrayed itself in hostility against him. And the second use fits with the first. For those who trust that they are righteous have the tendency to do what? Look down on one another despise one another he told this parable to those who trusted in themselves for their righteousness and who hated one another is essentially the takeaway from that parable we see adam cowering in his nakedness standing against the wind in his fig leaves which is a precarious position to be in in the face of wind one puritan made that observation i don't remember who and let that identification fig leaves in the wind be another blow against our relentless pride which causes us to posture ourselves over and against one another because we think our fig leaves are finer we think that somehow they'll withstand the wind a little bit better. I don't know if you've ever seen a leaf in the wind. <laughs> it does not stand. The only appropriate response, the only reasonable response of those who by nature are, chil of, are children of wrath and by grace have become recipients of mercy is broken-hearted thanksgiving and joy to see God's glory multiplied in the forgiveness of sin extended to fellow sinners. And that's the last use we can make of this difficult doctrine. We hear of the devastation that was brought to Adam's race by his sin and fall. And we and him sinning and falling and the plunge into curse. And we see on display everywhere around us the terrible, weighty, heartbreaking evidence of this reality. And we think, if life is to issue forth, the grace must far outweigh the sin. The gift must far exceed the transgression. It must be excellent by degrees. 
It must be more excellent than the offense was horrible. And that's the plain testimony of what we just read in Romans 5, 12 through 21. The essence of which can be stated, Christ is better. <laughs> Grace is more powerful. The gift is more excellent. And this has been done unto the glory of God. The horror unleashed by Adam's sin, a world of sin and misery, a world of condemnation and death. How can such a terror be overcome? The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Do you hear the lavish reality of grace in there? Do you hear the richness of God's gift towards sinners who stood helpless before a closed way and received what could only be given by otherworldly love in the gift of grace, righteousness, and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the gift, the power of grace is greater than the power of the trespass, the power of sin. Or as Richard Sibbs was wont to say, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. And that is good news for Adam's ruined and helpless race. Let's pray. How excellent is the gift, O Lord. How marvelous is the grace. How foolish we are to think that we could earn such an excellent gift. How wonderful the one who stood in the stead of sinners paying a debt that we could never repay in the satisfaction of justice, yielding his life in our stead in the fulfillment of all righteousness such that we might become yours, vessels of mercy, hearts that delight to sing, worthy are you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to receive all blessing and honor and glory. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.